0: Millions of people are currently in detention without yet being found guilty of a crime in pre-trial detention. And in many countries, the court system has a large backlog of cases. So while the governments manage the balance between keeping everyone safe and reducing the spread of the virus, how can we maintain the fundamental right to a fair trial? My name is Omar Phoenix Khan, and this is Justice Focus. Fair Trials International is a global criminal justice watchdog. With offices in London, Brussels, and Washington, they work to identify where criminal justice is failing, to alert the world to the problems, and then work to resolve those issues. Jago Russell has been the chief executive of Fair Trials since September 2008. Before joining Fair Trials, he worked as a policy specialist at the human rights charity Liberty and worked as a legal specialist in the UK Parliament, assisting the human rights, home affairs, and Constitutional Affairs Select Committees. Jago is a qualified solicitor and has published and lectured widely on a range of criminal justice and human rights issues. Jago, welcome to the show. Uh,
1: Thanks for inviting me, Omar.
0: Well, I hope you're well and I hope your teams are well. Perhaps we could start off with you telling us a little bit about what Fair Trials focuses on during a normal state of (laughs) affairs and not a global pandemic.
1: Yeah, so Fair Trials are an advocacy organisation which focuses on uh, improving protection for the right to a fair trial in criminal cases. Mm-hmm. We generally focus on the on human rights protections in the the issue from uh, for in the period from a, a person's first contact with the criminal justice authorities, the police, to the final outcome of their case. So we generally don't do work around prison conditions mm-hmm. or around questions of what is or or should or shouldn't be a criminal offence. It's really about the fairness of procedure, and we. We basically do thought leadership on kind of key and emerging issues. So we try and uh, raise awareness and build advocacy and activity around kind of growing global challenges to fair trials. So an example of that would be the work we've done on kind of cross-border cooperation, Mm -hmm. so trying to get people to think about the human rights impact of that. Uh, Things like, you know, Interpol red notices or the work that we've been doing on on plea bargaining. So kind of a thought leadership role. Mm -hmm. We work with international and regional organisations to try and uh, encourage the, the setting of, you know, useful standards in respect of of fair trial rights and enforcement where existing human rights standards are being violated by by countries. Mm -hmm. Um, And a a big part of the work is supporting criminal justice reformers around the world uh, in their own work to to advance fair criminal justice systems. So we have a really active network of of, uh, NGOs, activist defence lawyers, universities across Europe, uh, in the US and
0: in Latin America. OK, great, thanks. And before we come to any specific recommendations, could you tell us a little bit about the current realities in the court systems across some of those countries that you work in and how authorities have begun adjusting?
1: Yeah, Fair has been has recently launched a part of its website which is monitoring the way that criminal justice systems have been changing and adjusting to the pandemic. There are certain patterns that are very clear, But it is a pretty piecemeal situation. Mm -hmm. And I think in many places, the overriding situation is one of of a lot of chaos, to be honest. Uh, Actually, countries trying to figure out how to apply social distancing measures in the context of criminal justice proceedings. Yeah. And uh, to be honest, I think all countries are struggling to kind of figure out how to do that and you know our hope is that that you know some of the best practices that are developed in in, in countries in this area you know in a very challenging context uh get picked up on, on and learned and applied uh, in other countries because obviously the pandemic is also spreading uh, a different rate uh, in different parts of the world yeah so i suppose chaos
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah so how to make chaos fair is the question yeah so I know that some places have a large backlog of cases ready to go to court, and some governments have talked about only urgent proceedings continue. So just wondering, what do you, authorities usually mean when they say urgent cases, and how does that get decided?
1: Again, this is an area where there's, there's you know differences across countries. Yeah. Um, you know, for some countries, urgency is interpreted as meaning you know the person will otherwise have to be released uh, because the duration the Permitted period of pretrial detention is coming to an end, Mm -hmm. so you know those those are you know in some places that's treated as an uh, urgent case. I.e., we can't just keep the person in detention until things go back to normal because the time limits are running out. So we'll we'll do the the trial. The other you know kind of situation is similarly with limitation periods. So lots of countries say if you don't complete a prosecution within X you know period. Then uh, you can't you can't prosecute the person. So you know that can also be uh, urgency. And then there are also questions around the kind of severity of the offence, um, and and that can be treated as you know more serious offences are urgent. A number of countries have kind of talked about uh, in flagrante kind of cases and processing those mm. as a matter of of priority. So that's people where um, they've been
0: caught in the act and it's very obvious that it yeah, definitely exactly. happened. Yeah
1: exactly and again there's kind of issues uh, around domestic violence cases and mm-hmm. trying to kind of process and address those uh, in the context of of lockdown in in many countries so there are different there are different approaches to what's urgent and there are there are some significant issues that this urgency yeah. creates basically when it comes to the fairness of the proceedings
0: and you mentioned about pre-trial detention there and obviously where this is used it can be a great driver to overcrowding in prisons and then greater problems in spreading the virus but when we're talking about who is kept in detention and who's released until their trial is bail the main factor that decides who is kept in and who's released and there's always a lot of discussion around finances and access to money bail online in the literature so do you think we will see a change in these processes during the crisis or are there any other factors that you think are important
1: yeah, okay, so there's a there's a kind of few pieces there. I mean, mm-hmm. as a general rule, the money bail issue is is much more prominent in the US than anywhere else. Okay. So, you know, other countries do have financial security for uh, release pre-trial, but the only country that's kind of made an industry out of that and made it the kind of standard is the United States. And, um, yeah, no, it, it's uh, good to see some kind of variation in practice Uh, there in 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 some parts of the US so you know some progressive prosecutors saying that they're not going to uh request kind of or that they're not going to request detention um in the context of of money bail and um so you know there's there's some Mm. changes there it's not it's not a kind of broad global pattern though yeah one of the big concerns for me here is that there's a lot of focus around prisoner releases, which is great because of the huge kind of dangers to, to people involved in the prison system mm-hmm. uh, resulting from COVID-19, including, you know, prisoners, but also prison staff, etc. Yeah. Um, but often that's not really focusing on the question of people that are being put into prison while awaiting trial. So, you know, for example, in uh, England and Wales, the rules on early prisoner releases are around convicted prisoners, not, not people that are in, in prison awaiting trial. Yeah. So there's a real worry about that. Um, and actually, my, one of my fears, and actually one of the things we're seeing, is countries that are addressing the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of not keeping people out of pretrial detention but actually making it easier to keep them in pretrial detention for longer so right. countries are, are, are you know, are basically extending the maximum periods of pretrial detention, you know, France is a really worrying example here they're making it easier to extend pretrial detention without court hearings mm-hmm. they're, you know, removing the rights of people to kind of
0: uh, yeah, appear before the court before their uh, held in detention. And why do you think that's happening? Because obviously that's that's or, could be seen as a, a failure of one of the basic functions of the criminal justice system in terms of presumption of innocence.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the starting position should be that, you know, detention before conviction is a measure of last resort. So, you know, in practice, there should be kind of greater protections against unjustified pretrial detention. Um, I think... Uh, why is it happening? I think it's... Gosh, it's, it's, a, it's a complexity factor. So mm. some of them, some, to some extent, it's because lots of countries have always paid lip service to the idea of the presumption of innocence, but have just, as a routine manner, you know, measure, detained people mm. pretrial, particularly for certain types of case. So, you know, sometimes the presumption of innocence stuff... Is really, you know, it, it's it's words that law and practice, you know, don't meet, um, and of course there are important principles. You know, it's a hugely important principle. Yeah. That if you've not been convicted of, of anything, you should be, you know, treated as innocent, and you should not be deprived of your liberty unless it's absolutely kind of necessary for limited reasons. Nevertheless, you know, the reality is is different. Mm-hmm. There's also a a challenge around who is it that controls pre-trial detention, and normally pre people in pre-trial detention are kind of under the control of the courts and of the prosecution services Mm -hmm. so it's actually quite a lot easier to agree a kind of mass release scheme when it comes to people that are within the prison system convicted people in the prison system whereas if you're talking about people that are in detention waiting for trial you know the decision to put them there was specifically by a judge it's it's in the context of Uh, ongoing proceedings and making sure that the person appears in court and so it's just that the mechanics are are much harder so in lots of countries you've got individual defense lawyers who are having to make individual applications to get people out of pre-trial detention Um, so and you know some great work going on and we're supporting you know work on that in Europe to try and get lots of defense lawyers applying for their clients to be released but it would be much better and much more efficient Hmm. if if the state's created a kind of general rule yeah. restricting the ability to detain people or the amount of detention that was taking place um but the me- mechanics of it are just different yeah i think for me there's there's a kind of general there's a general question here when it comes to pre-trial detention you know is the overriding objective that the country is pursuing trying to keep people safe and to protect their health and welfare and their life by keeping them out of places of detention which is what they should be doing mm-hmm. in this context of really restricting the use of pretrial detention that's what should be happening yeah and that's what's happening in some parts of the world in other places like france though that's not the primary consideration for the legal system the primary consideration for the legal system is how do we continue to process cases how do we continue to get convictions Mm. how do we continue to you know keep people off the streets that the public might not want on the streets Um, and you know really some countries are treating you know pursuing that kind of law and order objective um, rather than the kind of public health public safety objective and and really in the current context because of the the huge dangers created by the pandemic for people in detention you know the balance
0: really needs to shift Mm. um towards protecting life and welfare yeah and as you say that law and order motivation seems to be trumping the public health imperatives and that means that the trials are continuing perhaps and they don't need to so I want to ask you about those trials that do continue and how they might function under current conditions. But before we actually get to the trial, if we do have people in pre-trial detention waiting for those trials that are continuing, they will need to access their defence lawyer or public defenders so that they can form their defence. So how can that work when there are no legal visits in place at the moment in most countries?
1: Yeah, when people think about, you know, fair trials, they often think about the the drama in the courtroom, mm-hmm. you know, at the final kind of court hearings and the trial itself. In fact, you know, a lot of the most important stuff in the legal process that determines fairness um, happens at these really early stages. So when you're in police detention or, you know, while you're in pre-trial detention yeah. and before the trial starts. And yeah, one of the huge concerns is how difficult it is for people to access a lawyer. Or well, you know other crucial services that they might need like interpretation, medical support, etc. In these early stages, so if somebody is taken into custody, you know, across Europe now you have a legal right to speak to a lawyer before you're interviewed by the police mm-hmm. and to have a lawyer present during that police interview. But actually, how do you how do you get access to a lawyer uh, in the current context where there are real concerns around social distancing? Um, And, you know, that is is a very big current problem in lots of jurisdictions. A number of jurisdictions have basically taken the view that they will just try and move everything remote. So, basically, you can have a telephone conversation with your lawyer, but your lawyer won't be expected to go into the police station. To be honest, for some categories of defendant, that can be a real concern. Yeah. So, you know, for vulnerable... Imagine a child in, in police custody actually having real access to real people yeah. can make a huge difference to their experience of what, you know... Actually, this is... Even if we're operating in the context of COVID-19 and a pandemic, the question of whether you as a child are going to end up with a criminal conviction has huge implications. Of course, yeah. And uh, and so making sure that, that they have access to the support they need in police police custody is crucial. And so... You know there are there are issues around the assumption that everything can be done remotely, mm. and that's fine. There are also lots of practical issues, practical questions like confidentiality of video link communication so it's absolutely crucial that if you're trying to get advice from your lawyer in you know before you you're interviewed by the police that that's able to happen in complete confidence yeah um, but do do lawyers and do defendants have cast iron guarantees that this communication via video link or via phone is confidential, that there's no way it can be listened to? Mm-hmm. Similarly, do they actually physically have a space in which they can sit as a computer terminal for a video link conversation where there's nobody else around to hear them? Yeah. And then, you know, really practically, lots of places so you know in in spain for example they've agreed now in madrid a protocol for for dealing with uh, access to a lawyer in the police station but you know the reality there we're told by defense lawyers is that you know the the facilities simply don't exist so you know Hmm. on paper there's this nice idea that that where you know in almost all cases there will be remote support by lawyers with you know some capacity for in-person stuff where it's vulnerable defendants or, or you know crucial yeah but the, 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 meca- the facilities the kit just doesn't exist in police stations to allow that to happen um, so you know so it's a big issue and it's something that people aren't aren't really focusing on as, as much as they should do yet and it's difficult because the lawyers themselves are understandably very concerned about wanting to socially distance for their own health and well-being and for that of, of
0: their families. Well, yeah, definitely, and even in the police stations or prisons, there may not be enough staff to allow people to leave their cells just to take those calls with their lawyers.
1: Again, the the reality is that that giving people you know access to justice in the current context is incredibly difficult yeah. and takes time and resources and will just take everybody a bit longer. And actually really the only way you can manage that properly is if you try and reduce the number of people that are entering the criminal justice system. So for me, some of the most important and exciting things that we're seeing are kind of policies around, not you know, not arresting people for misdemeanours, mm. for, you know, really low-level, you know, criminal offences in the current context. Yeah. Um, because actually it's only if you can shrink down the size of the justice system the number of people being processed the number of people being detained that you really stand any chance of giving those people that have to enter the criminal justice system right now or whose cases have to be dealt with now you know giving them a, a chance of a, a of a fair a fair trial
0: yeah okay so if we follow our train of thought through the legal process we've talked about reducing the number of people entering the justice system but for the few that are held in pre trial how they should still be able to access their lawyers. Let's now presume that the state do want to continue to hold court hearings. How might they still go ahead during the pandemic? And what's your position on virtual hearings?
1: Yeah, I mean, my my general position is I have, con- I, I have concerns about virtual hearings. Yep. A lot of research has, has been done, or quite a bit of research has been done, you know, to... Which kind of indicate that that they can have a the, the nature of the hearing mm. can have an impact on the outcome, uh, and I imagine if you take a pre-trial detention hearing, I would it seems pretty logical to me that a judge would be more likely to release a person who's in the court before them. You know, it seems more of a big deal to a judge. Mm. Uh, to send them back to a place of detention if they're already there in front of you in the, in the courtroom yeah. uh, whereas if they're just dialing in from, you know, already from, a, from police detention it just doesn't seem such a big deal to basically say, okay, well we'll continue the detention for another day or two um, so I have, uh, you know, I have real concerns particularly in the absence of really good data and evidence mm. about its impact on outcomes about moving to remote hearings and i can see the efficiency benefits i could also see actually benefits for defendants uh you know for a lot of defendants it's an incredibly traumatic experience you mm-hmm. know getting in the prison van to be taken to and from court for hearings you know it's it's i could i could see certain lots of arguments for it but uh really it feels to me like a lot more work needs to be done to understand the the impact of it on procedural fairness and on the outcomes of hearings. So that's, that's my general yeah. position. You know, there's also challenges like open justice. So for me, you know, making sure that if, if things are happening kind of virtually that uh, it doesn't affect the ability of the outside world to witness what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that would be our our kind of broad position at fair trials in a normal context, the question is, you know, the reality of now and the pandemic and states' responses to mm-hmm. the pandemic. I understand in the current context why there is a drive to move away from, you know, in-person hearings. Of course, it's logical uh, that you know it's difficult to do social distancing uh, in a courtroom. Yeah. So I get that. I think there are there are challenges. So fair trials as issued some guidance around some of the things that these remote hearings need to take account of. So effective participation would be one, so making sure that the defendant um, actually is able to hear hear and to see what's going on mm. in the courtroom. Issues around information, so making sure that if a hearing is happening, you know, via remote technology that copies of documentation uh, has been provided in advance to the defence lawyer and to the to the defendant, so that they're able to read it, you know, in advance. So there's a whole load of very practical things that need to be taken into account, which I think a lot of the kind of current things are not, are not doing properly. Mm. You know, as as I you know, I, I think there is a degree of chaos in the rollout of of remote hearings. Again, though, I, for me, if this there is this broader question. You know, if remote hearings are sub optimal, if they aren't the fairest way of delivering. Mm. Uh, a fair criminal justice outcome to me there needs to be a focus on reducing volume in the criminal justice system yeah. so really those cases that are being dealt mm. with you know via remote hearings are smaller in number like yeah that seems like one really sensible thing to be doing and the other is thinking about delays So actually saying, you know, if somebody doesn't need to be held in detention, you know, suspend the kind of criminal justice process, you know, for a a given period during the state of emergency and then kind of look at uh, whether afterwards you want to pursue Mm. uh, the the normal, proper criminal justice process. So remote hearings, remote justice will obviously have to happen to some extent and is happening to some extent as a response to COVID-19.
0: And would you be able to give some examples of those different situations you've seen? And you've mentioned very different contexts with different levels of resources. So obviously the hearings will inevitably be different. And there have been some discussion even of using telephone hearings in some places. So are there some examples you'd like to speak to? So normally you'd have a hearing pretty quickly after you've been arrested by the police where you
1: appear before the judge of the court and a decision is made on whether to detain you so in France for example they uh, have removed the requirement altogether to have you know the defendant there in person Mm. and uh, they've even made it optional about whether or not that person appears via telephone or video link and they've effectively moved it to being a kind of almost on the papers proceedings um, with the defence lawyer effectively telephoning in to speak to the judge Mm -hmm. or having a video link conversation to speak to the judge so you know that's kind of one one example and to be honest courts are experimenting with figuring out you know this whole idea is very alien in many European justice systems that have no experience of of video link hearings and lots of emergency legislation and court guidance I'm talks sure. about moving yeah. to video link hearings, yeah. but in fact, you know, the systems just don't exist. So I was speaking to a Greek lawyer, for example, who was basically saying, you know, there's all this stuff about remote hearings, but in practice, the hearings are more or less continuing as they are, and we're just wearing you know, face masks. Right. <laughs> so, okay. um, and then, yeah, a range of tactics. So, you know, you're starting to see lawyers reporting on Twitter about hearings happening via Skype. So, again, it's, it's an evolving picture and very different country by country. And the basic infrastructure just did not exist in most countries yeah.
0: for remote hearings. So it's being kind of cobbled together as we speak. Well, and it's interesting you mentioned about the reaction of some of the lawyers because the focus tends to always be on the defendant and the fact that they are in the police detention or prison detention, but there's a, obviously a courtroom of other people usually, whether there's a judge or a magistrate, a public defender, a lawyer, a prosecutor. How do we keep people safe beyond the defendant?
1: Yeah, no, and I think this is, these are all the reasons for kind of looking at the possibility of doing remote hearings in urgent cases where they need to be processed and they can't be delayed. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it it ends up being around a range of adjustments that are needed to ensure the fairness of the proceedings. So Mm -hmm. actually, you know, providing more information in advance of the hearing, you know, in writing to the relevant parties so that they can properly prepare. It's difficult and imperfect, but, you know, you can do it, you have to look Overall, not just at the technology for the hearing itself, but what you can do to enable people to prepare properly mm-hmm. uh, in advance. One of the things that um, I think states should be doing is looking at criminal justice actors as key workers. So quite rightly, there's a lot of focus around you know treating medical staff as yeah. key workers. But if states accept that the justice system cannot completely grind to a halt, then the people that are needed to do that should be treated as... Key workers and provided with protective equipment, provided yeah. with financial support, if necessary, to ensure that they themselves have access to the technology to enable them to do that job mm-hmm. properly. Um, and I don't, I don't see that happening uh, as much as it should be. You know, really seeing criminal justice actors mm-hmm. as as key workers with you know that require investment and protection in this context.
0: So Jago, you're the chief executive. Are there any things that you wish other people from other positions understood about your role that would help your organisation? I know that you do work closely with court systems, lawyers, academics, many others. But with NGOs and charities often having to work to a specific project cycle, seeking funding, project management, evaluation, before then starting it all over again. Is there anything that you would hope that academics or other organisations could do differently that would help you improve the impact of your organisation?
1: Yeah, I think fair trials, like all organisations, are basically trying as much as they can to pivot in a way that enables them to respond to the kind of current reality and priorities and mm. it's to be honest, it's 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 a challenge getting the balance right between dealing as a small organisation with the you know immediate urgent needs mm. that are created by uh, COVID nineteen and states' responses to it, while also recognising that you know we will emerge the other end of this crisis, mm. and uh, all of the many things that are wrong with criminal justice systems around the world will still need to be dealt with. Um, and so you know, managing that that balance is is tricky. But we're really lucky to have a group of funders who are very kind of understanding of uh, the current current context and the need to address the uh, you know immediate urgent things that are arising in in this context. So, mm. um, so that's great. I think generally, I've been really pleased to see the high level of kind of collaboration across ngos it's been great to see organizations you know working together but also you know just just collaborating to use their Mm. communications platforms to get useful information out there as quickly as possible um and so you know there, there are some really positive things that are happening in terms of the sector in the current context
0: What does impact mean for fair trials and what would successful impact mean for you personally in in your role and for the NGO overall? Yeah, I mean, for fair
1: trials, impact is uh, seeing the fairness of criminal justice systems around the world increasing and not kind of reducing. You know, trials become fairer, not less fair. And that that isn't something that's just about what's written down on paper in terms of the law. That is practical reality. So, yeah. for example, you know, we believe that everybody that gets arrested by the police, wherever they are in the world, ought to be able to have access to a lawyer, you know, even if they can't afford to pay for one themselves. And mm. so, for us, impact there is seeing, yet yeah, laws change to require access to a lawyer, for example, across Europe, but also then that that being what happens, you know, yeah. so, that, so that people do actually get access to a lawyer in police custody. So, I mean... That that's what impact looks like to Fair Trials. There's lots of kind of interim measurements of of impact. You know, like Mm -hmm. political uh, social engagement in the issues that we think are are really key issues. You know, the strength and activism of the the network that we kind of operate at at the heart of are Mm a whole different kind of set. You know, uh, interim indicators that that the work is is having an impact but but ultimately it's it's the fairness of the system and of people's experience of the system that matters in this context i think it's um it's actually about trying to ensure that as little damage as possible is done to the fairness of criminal justice proceedings during the crisis yeah so that you know where remote justice is used trying to make sure that you know practical safeguards are put in place to limit the risks of that it's it's also about um, taking the opportunity to make arguments that we made all along and hoping that people in the current context are willing to kind of look at those arguments uh, afresh and so for example, mm-hmm. we and lots of others have been arguing against the excessive use of pretrial detention for years um, and you know this, crisis really should focus people's minds and we hope it will on reducing unjustified pre-trial detention and that some good practices there you know will emerge from this crisis to try and keep people out that might stick around afterwards also with a view to to trying to head off the risk that some emergency measures in terms of changes to criminal justice proceedings don't become the long-term reality and the long-term norm and there's been a lot of discussion of that in the context of you know emergency powers for states to kind of restrict public gatherings or kind of new emergency criminal offenses and stuff but the same i think the same risk applies to how the justice system operates yeah you know i don't want to wake up at the end of this and discover that all of a sudden nobody has physical access to a lawyer in the police station and that it's just become Mm. the norm for this just to happen by telephone that might be an urgent necessity during the crisis but it shouldn't become the norm and i think i think we all need to be kind of mindful of of those risks and of 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 practices that develop here becoming the long-term
0: norm yeah, and obviously we're at the beginning of the crisis and we don't know what's going to happen and some people are being optimistic and saying that hopefully as a result of this people will realise less people need to be in prison anyway and we'll see some progressive reform. But I think, it's like you say, it's important to warn against the possibility that powers extended during this specific period of crisis then become standardised as the norm. The other long-term thing that we should all be reflecting on is the, is the likely
1: financial position of public finances around the world when we emerge from this current crisis Mm -hmm. and we all know that when states are stretched financially one of the first areas to cut is criminal justice yeah and we also know that many justice systems around the world are already suffering from chronic underinvestment in terms of legal aid in terms of investment in decent kind of prisons and police services Mm -hmm. and um and you know, for that reason too, there's not going to be a lot of money around uh, after after this for quite some time because of the amount of investment yeah. you know states are, are making now to kind of try and keep, you know, people people's income coming in, and so I, I do think in response to that as well, we need to be making the argument very forcefully now for right-sizing the criminal justice system, for shrinking the overall size of the justice system, um, mm-hmm. because there's not going to be the money available after this to keep you know prosecuting and detaining as many people mm. as a, as have been kind of prosecuted and detained in many uh, countries around the world it's, the money's not going to be there to do that
0: So to think of some of the important messages to end on, if you had a room that you could fill with people and you had half an hour to talk to them about reacting to the pandemic, who would you put in that room and what would you say to them?
1: Yeah, I think, I think I'd be talking about kind of justice, justice ministers. I think this, it kind of requires high-level high hmm. political engagement. Um, and the key messages would really be around... You need to shrink the justice system right now. You need to... These are the cases, the types of cases that you could get taken out of the criminal justice system without creating significant, you know, public security, public safety risks. You need to get people out of detention. uh, And this is how you can do that. And, you know, if you're, you're... You will be left with a kind of rump of cases that have to be... to remain in the criminal justice system... Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, these are the practical steps you can do to to, to make sure that those continue to be dealt with fairly. I think, I think the main argument has to be about shrinking the system right yeah. now so that appropriate adjustments can be made to allow justice to be done
0: in really exceptional circumstances. Great. Jago, thank you so much. And I'd also urge people to go to the Fair Trials website to look at all the guidance. Now where if people wanted to follow you and your work, where's the best place for us to send
1: them? Yeah, I mean you're probably best to, to follow us on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So at Fair Trials. And also if you go to our website, our homepage, fairtrials.org, um there's a link through to a part of the website we've created and launched in the past couple of weeks, which is about monitoring the criminal justice implications of COVID-19 so there's a wealth of information in there about what states are doing and also lots of guidance in there about how to protect fair to our rights in in the context of COVID-19.
0: Yeah but I've signed up for those updates as well. Jago thank you so much for your time for being on the show. It's a pleasure thanks again for the invitation. No problem and good luck with it all I really wish you all the best. Okay, thanks for listening. Some of you may have noticed that Jago was joined by some birds in the background. Sorry for that. Let's hope they spread the Fair Trials message as well. If you'd like a link to Fair Trials guidance, you can find that in the show notes. And you can also follow the show on Twitter at justice underscore focus and me at Omar P. Khan. See you next time. Cheers. Cheers.